Hello, and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast. Emerging technologies are rapidly changing the global agricultural industry, and we believe that this revolution is only getting started. But there's still too much hype out there and too big of a disconnect between ag and ag tech. So on this show, we try to bridge that gap. In each episode, we bring you the story of a different innovator in agriculture and try to find the place where ag and tech meet. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. Welcome to our latest episode of the Ag Tech So What podcast. This week's guest is Matt Rosner coming to us from Western Australia. When we recorded this episode, we had a bit of trouble with the recording conditions, so it's a bit hard to hear Matt in the beginning, uh, but please stick with it. We thought the conversation was still worthwhile to bring to you, uh, and the recording conditions do get better after the first couple minutes, so please hang in there. I loved chatting with Matt uh, because he is such a good example um, and the product that he's talking about is such a good example of how innovation in agriculture um, can come from all different uh, areas and can be brought to market by all different kinds of businesses. So Matt talks about the Marshall Multispread product, um, which is quite famous in Australia. He also talks about the evolution of that product, some of the software that they're building, um, and more broadly, how the ag tech space is evolving, what's the future of data, of standards, and, and even of agronomy itself. Really enjoyed this episode with Matt, and I hope you do too. Matt Rosner, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So I wanted to start with, uh, like I usually do, a bit of your, <clears throat> excuse me, a bit of your background. So tell me, um, yeah, how you got to where you are today, what is kind of currently in your um, repertoire of, of various plays, which which I've seen in the ag and ag tech space. Okay, so I um, studied mechanical engineering, um, being from a engineering uh, background that made uh, sense to me uh, so I uh, finished up my studies in the 90s and that's when I joined the family business so that's uh, Rosen Proprietary Limited so synonymous in Australian agriculture with the Marshall Multispread uh, fertilizer spreader brand um, so the family company was started by my great-grandfather in 1900 they started off as a, a blacksmith business and that grew over the years and in the 1960s they started building the Marshall range of fertilizer spreaders um, so when I came into the business in the um, mid-90s that was sort of the the dawn of precision farming um, it was when GPS was really starting to take off and the whole proposition of variable rate was starting to get some early traction in the market um, so my role in the business is I'm the technical director of um, of Rosen Proprietary Limited. So my role stretches from um, engineering and design through to product testing, um, through to some marketing as well. Sounds like quite a few hats to wear. Is it still very much a family business? Are there other family members uh, involved with you? Yeah, so the, the company's still family owned. Um, my father is the managing director. He's still involved in the in the business and uh, my brother Mark is uh, also in the business as well. It's interesting the um, kind of succession gets talked about a lot in farming, right? 
in for farming properties. Um, I imagine some of the both issues and opportunities are the same in a in a technology or, or other business. Do you um, see any parallels or, or big differences between the succession conversation in, in farming and in um, in business or in tech? Um, I definitely think it is very similar uh, between the family farm as opposed to a manufacturing or a technology business, the, the same questions that need to be asked and the, the same sort of careful planning needs to be applied. Yeah, makes sense. When you went to uni and, and studied mechanical engineering, did you always know that you would come work in the business or did you ever have a, a thought of going off and doing something else? Um, I think initially I had thought that I would do something else um, before coming back to the family business, but in the in the mid nineties, the the business was r really starting to grow quite rapidly because of um, mainly because of the lime uh, and gypsum spreading that was starting to be, gain popularity for soil amelioration. So um, at the time, there it was a pretty much a no brain decision that needed to be made just to come back and help out. And um, how is it working with your family? I, I had a um, guest on recently and uh, she was talking about working in the family business and how um, just it's, it's easy and how they separated things. I know that I would, um, I love my parents, I'm really close with them, but I would struggle to, to work with them. Do you ever find it, um, find it challenging? Uh, it is a challenge. I think communication is the key thing um, and also trying to delineate like a, your family life to your business life is pretty it's whilst it's challenging, it really needs to to be done. Um, I can imagine it's easy to work all the time or talk about work all the time. Yeah, that that can take over, um, and you just really need to be mindful that on the weekends, if you're catching up with your family, that the work should be left at work. Yeah. Probably easier said than done. Um, tell me, and, and those for those listening that might not be familiar, um, about the spreader and the kind of story or, or history of, of the yeah. Marshall spreader. So the Marshall brand was first introduced in the 1960s. In the early 1980s, we built the Marshall multi-spread. Uh, the Marshall multi-spread was at the time was the first Australian-made all-purpose machine. So I just touched on lime and gypsum as being uh, key products that uh, really took off in the in the 90s. Um, the multi-spread was the first machine that could do both lime and gypsum as, along with your traditional granulated fertilisers. Um, the popularity grew quite rapidly. Um, in fact, we've just finished uh, our 10,000th 10, unit. So we built 10,000 since the 1980s, um, which is uh, quite an achievement, we think. Um, we would have um, a significant share of the Australian market that's built up during that time. Um, how we stayed relevant? Well, we, we spent a lot of time trying to keep in touch with our customer base, understanding what how their needs are changing and things like control traffic and variable rate have really fundamentally changed what the multi-spread does look like now. Um, modern spreaders, variable rate ready, 
It's got load cells to accurately measure calibration so no product is wasted. Um, and to improve efficiency, they've physically got larger with larger um, hopper capacities. Um, so we really concentrate on being in control of our user experience as well. So making sure that we've got good support services for machines in the field, a good network of dealers and spare parts back up as well. Yeah, I wanted to ask about um, one, of, one of the things that gets talked about in ag is the kind of difference between point solutions and platforms. And um, though the center has lots of different functionality and, and you know, is, is flexible and like you said, taking on new farming systems, but in some ways you guys have stuck to a, a solution, made it really simple, really good support, like really focused on kind of one core area of expertise. Do you have you ever been tempted to build out more of a platform? Do customers ask you to kind of expand more horizontally than, than you've wanted to? Um, and, and how have you kind of made that decision? So we do get a lot of requests for customization. Um, in some cases, it can be done. Um, in others, it um, just doesn't make uh, commercial sense to, to spend a lot of time and effort in building a particular machine that might only have one application. Um, so I think in farming simplicity is very important um, and we've tried and we continue to do so to build really simple systems that are easily maintained um, that have a long service life as well. I think one of the big challenges for farmers today is just the cost of capital equipment. Um, it's continually rising um, and they're spending large amounts of money on machinery that's only used for two, three months of the year and then it's put in the shed. So we've really concentrated on building something simple, easy to maintain, that will last multiple seasons um, and have a, a long service life. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes total sense. Um, have there Are there ever any, um, could you give an example of a, feature that you thought about building that, that you guys didn't build or like a path you could have gone down that you that you didn't go down? So in the um, in the early 2000s we looked at building uh, combining a fertilizer spreader with a chaser bin in one unit and we built some prototypes put them in the field but they weren't really successful um, we've also did look at uh, using our core technology for a couple of mining applications as well, um, but that that wasn't successful either. Interesting. Did you? How, how did you? Um, like I can imagine, it's hard to when you've taken the time to build out a prototype, and you know you tried to go with the the chaser bins as well, and then it, it didn't work. Was it really obvious that it didn't work or was there a bit of kind of loss aversion where you wanted to keep going down that path and hoped it would work or like was it easy to let go? Um, as an engineer it's always difficult to let go of your ideas. They become a bit like babies I suppose, like children. Um, and there's also inventor syndrome as well where you, you obviously think that what you're what you're building is um, is going to rule the world. Um, so it 
it wasn't a difficult decision with those two projects to 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 walk away from because commercially you could see that they weren't just going to that they weren't going to make sense um and they had such a small share of the market um you've got to weigh up spending a lot of time thinking about a small share of your market rather than the other 97% that are changing rapidly. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the the changes. So you mentioned controlled traffic before. Um, yeah. How, like, tell me more about how the market has, I guess, fragmented, maybe not be the right word, in terms of who's adopting different kinds of practices that are maybe making them more suited to use new technologies versus others who haven't changed practices and, and how do you as a supplier kind of think about your market? Like, have you started to segment more readily? Have you started to help people adopt different practices so that they're more ready for the technology, kind of do that market education piece? How, how has that impacted um, the business? So I do see that the market is segmenting um, to a degree. So you, you've got your early adopters and they've probably got the latest control systems and um, uh, control traffic, so three-meter wheel spacings, load cells, the, um, like the, the fully optioned-up machine, um, and they've probably been the last 25 years. There's been a, a certain group of early adopters. Um, then there's a whole lot of growers that can see the benefits in doing something like variable rate or controlled traffic, but they're they're a bit scared to take the steps. Um, and those, I think they're concerned by having the support from OEMs, equipment suppliers, and potentially their agronomists as well. Um, so it does take a bit of education to, to move people to the um, new practices. Um, and in some... In some respects, there are some growers that are quite happy just to stick with a, a simple machine and they don't have the need to do variable rate. Perhaps their their soils aren't variable enough to justify the investment um, or that they're on top of their, their management and their costs. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I think that you hit on the right point that I hear a lot around kind of fear uh, and that lack of support. Like, you know, just not to go on the journey alone and if I get stuck like kind of who am I going to call and um what what does that full ecosystem look like and if if things don't work out or if I have questions yep um I'm yep. curious you guys work across industries as I understand it's sort of a lot in Broadacre but livestock and a bit in vineyards as well do you see differences in how each of those industries are changing in terms of um both practices and technology um there's one there's one overarching um, uh, thing that's happening across all the industries and that's just that they need to be competitive so they've only, they've got to get higher yields or be on control of their, in control of their costs um, and that's happening across agriculture all the subsets of agriculture um, the days of um, being able to put out fertilizer or spray and know that you're going to get a return, they've disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
And, and is that pretty true? It sounds like in all the industries, are there kind of nuances that have impacted technology adoption? And I guess like one thing that's interesting to me that, that we talk to entrepreneurs about is based on the kind of market size or commodity value, you might pick different markets. Like if you have a technology that could be applied to a bunch of different industries, you might use market size as a reason to pick one over the other. So some industries kind of get more technology than others. Um, I think even if the problems are kind of the same in, in all the different industries? Yeah, look, I think um, the obviously broadacre and large livestock operations, they operate on a, on a smaller margin. Uh, so the, the lower value crops, they probably need technology that's got all the features, but it's at a, a lower cost point. Um, something like viticulture, horticulture, market gardening, sort of higher value crops, um, they may be prepared to pay a little bit more. Um, they can immediately see the benefits of adopting a technology. Um, it's maybe because that uh, those sort of enterprises are much smaller in scale. Um, it's immediately obvious to them how a certain technology would improve their bottom line. Yeah, makes sense. Um, how about I think, this? I, th I think also if you think about uh, broadacre or larger livestock, um, it might take a few seasons for them to, to actually realise the value in going to control traffic or variable rate uh, because it's so much so heavily dependent on climate in Australia. Yeah, I actually was having that conversation with um, someone today around how the like visibility of the improvement matters a lot and you can't always control yeah. the factors around that. And so you might do something that worked super well, but the other conditions meant that you, you didn't know. Um, and so then you don't stick with it, but it actually would have been really beneficial. And that's, um, I think that will improve with more sensors and data, et cetera. But right now it's yeah. still hard to isolate the experiment and know what worked and what didn't. Yep. Um, so the digital space has obviously grown a ton. Tell me about um, kind of your guys's play in, in that space um, and the, the background story of, of the app and, and what you're now doing on the digital side. So we decided uh, a few years ago that we would build a, a mobile app for sending out calibration data to our client base. So previously that was calibration data was all in a manual. That was a fairly static thing. So um, different products would change, the um, fertilizers would change and the uh, manuals weren't updated. So what we decided to do is to put all that information in a really flexible uh, iOS and Android app, and put that out to the market and we got a really good response. Um, it was quite surprising because you would go to a field day and a lot of the clients would come up and say, oh, I've got, got your uh, Marshall app on my phone now. I don't need to look at my manual. I can be in the field and set my machine up exactly how I, how I need it. And the calibration is quite accurate. Um, we then thought... Well, mobile's moving quickly. Um, sensors are becoming cheaper, as is hardware. So let's see if we can build a, um, a controller app to run on an iPad 
that would make it easier to do variable rate. Um, so this was about 2016, and there immediately there was a lot of um, uptake of that product um, it, compared to a, a tier one OEM. We were able to do a variable rate on a fertilizer spreader for sort of half the cost. So immediately there was a lot of interest in it. Um, at that time, uh, Precision Agronomics Australia were building our hardware. So they're an uh, Esperance-based company who we were working with uh, to do hardware development. Um, earlier this year in 2018, uh, Precision Agronomics was purchased by Rosner. So as a equipment manufacturer, we we see that, yeah, we're still going to be building products into the future, physical products, but the importance of all the services and the data ecosystems that exist around the product are going to um, really increase. So it's this whole idea of managing the user experience um, from start to finish. Um, so as part of that acquisition, um, uh, Precision Agronomics and and Rosners have formed the I4M brand. Um, so the whole idea of I4M is to to take what each company was previously doing and to form a single single brand that its aim is to have really flexible and open systems that are um, cost effective and independent from the larger OEMs. They can work with any tractor. It's really streamlined data transfer. Um, no nasty unlock codes and subscription fees. So that's um, in a bit of a nutshell of where we're moving in the digital space. Right. So um, maybe I'm being uh, an idiot here. What does I4M stand for? Or what does it mean? Um, so it means Internet for Machines. Um, that, that's how the the name come up, came about. Our whole plan is to be able to to have equipment talking back to the internet to transfer and receive operational data, prescription maps um, as applied data. Yeah. And t when you guys started down the path of kind of building this app, how did you find doing more on the software side and that direct user interface? Like it's not necessarily the same skill set or, or um, capabilities as what kind of core business was. How did you find entering in the software world and um, yeah, managing that space? Um, look, it was a very steep learning curve. Um, at times, it, was, it has been quite difficult. Um, I think the, in the digital realm, specification documents uh, like roadmaps, etc., are really important. Um, particularly when you're a company that's used to dealing with things that are tangible and physical, um, it's it's a bit abstract to then have your team start thinking about well, software and code, and this is uh, the value is in the code, not something that's phys physically able to be touched, etc. Yeah, it's really different too from like a um, that kind of visibility of results. Like we made a bunch of progress yeah. today, wrote these functions, or we got the end. It's like, well, let me see it. It's like, well, like, you, you can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, 
I'm curious about the the kind of um, variable rate space in terms of you guys get so as I understand it, you can get different um, maps from different providers, like third-party providers. Do you see that space becoming more standardized? Like I imagine that kind of translation into a shapefile or whatever is still a bit um, piece by piece. Do you, do you see it becoming more standardized? Who's going to, if anyone, kind of own that space or do that um, in a more standardized way? Or how do you see that evolving? I think that the shapefile format is a proxy at the moment for a standard. Uh, most systems can interpret a shapefile. Um, my thoughts are that eventually the industry is going to have to embrace data exchange and that perhaps the shapefile will be that default format. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges at the moment with moving prescription maps around is the whole USB uh, transfer um, and like having to have directories set up properly on USB drives. That That is really limiting um, the use of prescription maps. Um, the way our system works is that there's a, um, a website that the user can create their own username and password for, no unlock codes and subscription costs. You buy the hardware, you get access to the website. Um, and then it's as simple as just dropping a shapefile um, onto the server and then syncing it to your device. Um, it's a very simple process. Um, I feel that the larger OEMs do make it a little bit too difficult for most growers to get their head around that, the transfer and the um, file formats, etc. Just so I <clears throat> understand, is the challenge that it's um, you need a bit of a technical skill set to manage the process and um, exchange that? Or and you mentioned the kind of um, codes and access, so that's that's definitely one. That but is it a is it a technical issue or a kind of skills issue or just help me understand more deeply? I think it's more of a skills issue and time issue. Um, technically, it's it's definitely a lot easier now than what it has been. Um, uh, but it's just having the grower to have the skills to transfer the files correctly, right. and then them having the time. Like if you're a busy busy seeding and the agronomist sends you a new map, you don't want to spend, you want to minimise the amount of time that you're spending transferring files. You don't want to have to go back to the office, pick up a USB stick, take it out to the machine, load the map. Um, that's just too time consuming. Um, right. Whereas with our system, you can put a, a file on the server and it's immediately synced to the device. Yeah. Do you see, you mentioned the kind of technical capabilities, do you see the role of agronomists or service providers more broadly, I guess, changing to be more technical and, and tech savvy and kind of including more of those capabilities? Uh, most definitely. Ag agronomists and services providers need to be more tech savvy. Um, they, if they don't, they're not going to be relevant in five to ten years. Uh, they have to have that strong technical background um, in the digital space. Um, I think one of the um, 
one of the challenges that the industry faces is the fact that agronomous service providers are needing to learn more technically at a time when all the platforms they use are marching along rapidly and it's hard to keep up for them. Um, and we also see the fact that if you're using a system for, let's say, um, yield data processing, for instance, you might only use that for for um, two months of the year so that every harvest you've got to, the advisors have to relearn those those tools. Yeah, and what do you think the um, solution is there? Like where does this education come from? Is it just kind of those that invest in learning it and build the capabilities and, and um, exceed and like excel in this space? We'll, we'll stay ahead and we'll continue to exist or do you see a more like systemic intervention to build some of these skills? I think artificial intelligence will be when that arrives, that'll help everyone out. But until we get to that point where, say, yield data processing is automated, um, automation, automating prescription map creation, etc., like there's huge promise there for the industry. But before we can get there, we've got the whole standardisation question that needs to be answered. So you mentioned before about is Shapefile a standard format? Um, so we've, we've the industry's got to sort out standardisation. Um, we need to learn how to deal with much larger data sets as well. Um, so until we can teach machines to to make decisions on well, agricultural systems that are inherently complex, uh, we we really need to have the standardisation of the data sets so we can start teaching machines. Um, and we need agronomists to buy into that process because what works in one region of the country may not work in other regions of the country, so we need to have that sort of um, interaction with agronomists to learn how they manage certain um, farming situations. Yeah, it's interesting. The, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Matt. But probably the fourth thing that needs to happen is trust. Like, growers are very... Um, suspicious of new products that come out that promise a lot but don't deliver. They don't deliver the value. So I think as service providers, for instance, uh, precision agronomics business, our goal is really to, to bring uh, advisors or the end users along with us, so to educate them, uh, make sure they see value in what we're doing um, and to uh, look a few years ahead and to be able to so, sort of say, well, these we can't implement precision farming in one season, but how do we get to where we want to be in three years? So I actually see part of our business maybe in the future is that sort of planning steps of how to get to the end goal. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting the kind of evolving role of um, agronomy and, and service provision. It's it's not that it's going away, and I think there's a lot of fear that oh, when this technology comes online, you know, we won't need agronomists or we'll replace them. And I think your point is a, is a really good one. It's actually more that the skill set will change and evolve and, and almost kind of yeah. vertically integrate. Like more of the process will be human plus technology and covered um, by perhaps a single company than before. Um, but it's not that the human won't, won't actually be in the loop. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. 
we won't we won't be able to replace agronomists. Their, their expertise is is very valuable, um, and they'll just evolve to do some other um, some other task. Speaking of um, replacing people, <laughs> how about yeah. what do you see in the um, autonomy space more broadly for equipment? You know, robots and swarm farms and um, that kind of end of the spectrum, and then also just you know retrofit solutions to maybe get rid of one person um, or one task. How do you see that space evolving? I think there's a massive potential for a country like Australia to be leaders in. Um, the adoption of autonomous equipment. Uh, I still see the whole, uh, like technically it's feasible now, it can be done. Uh, but there's this whole question of legality. Um, if something does go wrong, who's responsible for it? I don't think the framework for dealing with autonomous uh, vehicles in general, the legal framework, has been well. Um, well thought through yet, mm. so it's a, it's a bit of the classic um, technologies moving faster than what governments are to regulate these industries. Um, it's interesting, right? Like you wonder whether um, take Uber for an example. Like they didn't wait until the policy around you know various things kind of got. Yeah. They just went ahead bullishly, and I think drones are an interesting example. Like you have the line of sight yeah. regulations, but if it's proving valuable enough, you know people are happy to fly them around a corner or over a hill or whatever. So I wonder about yeah. the like, will we will technology just actually practically get ahead and be adopted before regulations actually change, or will it become a barrier that has to change before these solutions are available? Um. My uh, thoughts are that the industry will just move. They, they just can't wait for regulators to sort sort out how we deal with um, uh, how we deal with the legalities of uh, tractor driving onto a public road, uh, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I think also there's a certain degree of control that may be lost by the large OEMs that may also slow things down. Um, for instance, uh, aftermarket steering kits that get put on brand new tractors, how does the, how do warranties work then? Who's responsible for the service? And to a, a greater extent, who has the skill set to service an autonomous tractor? Because it's quite a a niche thing that's got to be mechanically minded, electrically minded, and also have some sort of software bent as well. And if, if anything, the precision ag, precision ag industry currently is really struggling for the staff that have those skill sets. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I wonder where that will come from. Like, I think the pull will be great therefore the wages will be good and therefore people will figure yeah. out how to study it or people will figure out how to teach it i wonder too if it will be something that comes through you know bag colleges or kind of the traditional pathways or is that something that people will learn more in a trade school type sense or even online or like kind of what is the supply chain almost look like for, for that skill set um because i can imagine it being really different than the current one yeah that that is very true um it's in my mind, it's a tertiary level thing. 
but there's got to be a certain degree of practicality in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like I see this on a almost a daily basis where uh, we've got staff that are um, learning as we go and you can do lots of training but you really need that hands-on experience to to connect it all together. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting. Um, there's been a bit of talk of um, like virtual reality and augmented reality to do some of this training. Yeah. Like, could you have someone remote and then just have augmented reality kind of pull up the um, you know equipment in the paddock and send it back to a technician that's sitting in a in a city or whatever and help walk through it and diagnose it? Do you do you give kind of weight to any of those types of solutions? Uh, look, I think it's it's going to be a necessity to that those solutions evolve. Uh, we are looking at a really simple way of being able to log into a controller and um, just to get back some key calibration data to help over the phone for both our technicians and our clients. Right. Um, so that that is um, high on our um, development road roadmap at the moment. Interesting. I, I wanted to ask about, um, you guys obviously have lots of technical capabilities. You do your own manufacturing from the, the standards business perspective um, and obviously software as well. Do you, like now that there's this whole ag tech kind of scene developing and more startups and new entrants kind of building technology and thinking about solving these problems from different perspectives, do you guys think about partnering with some of these new entrants do you kind of give credit to any of the solutions you're seeing or is it still more like you know do it ourselves because we have the capabilities and, and the expertise um we we do keep a close eye on what's happening um and we're definitely open to collaborate with new players in the market um but we do have a core base that can well one it has the experience and it of the ag space so we can quickly build new products and get them to market um, but at the same time you have to make a decision whether it's more economically viable to partner with someone or build it yourself and we we have quite a, a strict regime of working out the answer to that question are there any um, examples of, of either opportunity areas or specific companies that you're looking at or that you think the kind of startup world is, is doing a good job of addressing and that you're keeping close watch on? So a good example is we've got a uh, distribution agreement through a UK-based company. It's an agronomy platform. Uh, we They came to us and said, we need some hardware built. Um, and we'd like to be able to interface with your hardware using APIs. So we, that was a, a partnership that we um, formally finalised in August this year. Um, so that's a good example of us having the ability to build our own cloud-based platform for handling data, but understanding that it's probably not really our strength. So let's, um, let's partner with a, a third party to do it to do something together. Um, definitely keeping an eye on things like drones and any sensor technology is something that's interesting to us. Um, we've got a, a company that here in Perth that we work quite closely with um, for provision of some drone-based services, so that's some um, Stratus imagery. You might be aware of them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, cool. Um, it's interesting. The in, in some ways, it's there obviously are potential collaborations and really good alignment and looking to solve similar problems for similar customers between, say, a business like Rosner that's been around for a long time and a startup that's just kind of starting. I wonder, do you see yeah. tension, um, like despite that alignment, tension in the kind of venture capital type of funding models and um, some of the incentives or business models of, of these new startups that maybe make it incompatible or, or are there opportunities there? How do you see that space? Yeah, look, that that is a bit of a challenge having a an older an older company that's well established. Um, any sort of venture capital company is going to be sort of looking at us thinking how why are these guys trying to play in this market that's just emerging um, or the other way they might think is well they've, they've got some money behind them might be a larger play here um, so there there's definitely something that we look at on a case to case to case basis right. um, and I, it, I think it just comes comes back to trust again yeah yeah, uh, that makes sense. I can imagine it from the other side too. Like <laughs> if they're saying, you know, it's this company that's been around a long time and um, playing in this new space and you're like, what are these new people playing in this space that we've been in for, for so long? <laughs> like, well, the both yeah. 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 And to be fair to most VC guys, they, particularly in this is a, from a West Australian perspective, used to dealing in mining, like agriculture is something that's... Um, yeah, they're not they're not, not okay with how the market works. Yeah, that's definitely something we've seen um, in in our work that there's a kind of getting up to speed on the space um, process, and you know, yeah. made even more complicated by the fact, like we were talking about before, that each industry is different. You know, how it works in Broadacre would be different than vineyards would be different than than livestock, etc. So it's um, yeah. you know pretty complex, but. If you stick with it, there are obviously, as as I'm sure you believe as well, big big opportunities. Yep, yep. So tell me about where you see, um, I guess, kind of a, a, a couple part question: where you see yourself, and and where you see the precision ag space in, let's call it, uh, ten years. What do you think is is happening? What's different from from um, today that will be happening then? I think in ten years' time, there's going to be huge sensor networks that are operating across farms in all different industries collecting data in real time that's being sent to cloud-based systems that have some degree of artificial intelligence to help growers make better decisions. Um, I hope that we see better system interoperability so the large players all talking to each other um, I'd like to see that happen, whether it does or not. We won't really know until uh, the future comes. Um, I'd like to think that support becomes um, uh, a lot easier to deliver um, and less of a challenge, and that what will drive that is better skills in the industry as well. Like it would be great to see young people seeing precision agri ag, um, agriculture as a, a great career to get involved in, um, like one of those sort of cool careers that 
they know that they're going to be able to work in the industry for the next 40 years and always be challenged. Yeah, it, um, I think that those are common things. I'm curious on the sensors and the kind of rollout of the networks, um, who, who do you think is behind that? Like in, in this vision you've created, is it a bunch of different companies? Are they startups? Are they existing providers? Like how does that happen? I think we're going to see initially there'll be quite innovative sensors that, uh, that come on the market, but I see that they'll probably start to get gobbled up by the bigger players. If they can see, they, as soon as they see some value, then they're going to want to acquire those smaller companies. Um, the more complicated sensors, probably the, the larger companies are going to start building because they obviously cost quite a lot to develop. Um, but it, it may not be your traditional um, manufacturing companies or OEMs that start building the sensors. It might actually come the other way. So companies that have cloud-based systems and they want to get a certain piece of data to add value to their system, they, they actually might start building sensors. I think that's a big possibility. Um, I mean, these days with sensor technology, it's all you know, almost like a commodity and it's becoming much easier to develop a particular type of sensor for a particular um, particular system. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that. I think the my sense is that space will get commoditized and I mean, there'll be some winners in the process, some acquisitions, as you said, and, and some wins. Um, yeah. But my guess is that's not the space you, you fully want to be in. Um, and, and how about yeah. yourself? Where will you be in, in 10 years? What will your what will your day-to-day -day look like? Uh, look, I'm, I'm hoping in 10 years' time that we've got the I4M brand is really well well established and that we uh, a business that continues to evolve um, and stay true to our sort of core values. Like I, I often say that it would be amazing if in 50 years' time Precision Agronomics is known as a, a business that's um, well-trusted, um, a high level of customer satisfaction, being able to deliver value um, and that essentially it's got a, a good name in the market in the same way that the Marshall Multispread brand has. Um, as far as where where do I see myself fit in, um, I'd be hoping that I can pass on a lot of my knowledge and educate the younger generation um, to to be able to Use the use the new tools, but also use a lot of that knowledge that has um, that I've been able to build up over the years. I know you said you have some kids. I think they're probably too young to be fully working in the business in in even ten years. Um, but have they shown any inclination, or do you have aspirations for them to to join the business one day as well? Oh, look, it'd be a great story if you could say that um, it was the fifth generation involved in the family company. Um, I think that if I look at, say, the big European family companies, they've always um, six, continued to succeed because they push the next generation to learn more. And I think that's probably the way that I would approach it, where I'd want my children to go and do something different, learn from other industries, and then bring that skill set back. I think that's very important. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess it's consistent with what we said before around the kind of different skills that we'll need in the future, that it, it might be tech yeah. skills, you know, it might be, um, yeah, very different kinds of capabilities than folks have today. So that, that makes a lot of sense and probably they won't always be learned in the current business or, or in this industry, right? It might have to come from other experiences or other places. Yep, yep. Well, very cool, Matt. I um, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I think it's such an amazing story of what you guys have, have been able to, to do and build and, and the brand that you do have um, and how modern the thinking is, is becoming. It's um, really cool from my perspective to talk to a company that's been around for so long, but that is yet still on the kind of cutting edge of what's coming. And um, I asked the question about where, does, where do you see things in 10 years often? And even from people who are working on the cutting edge of, of tech, I get a, yeah, it'll, it'll probably look a bit the same as it does today. Um, so yeah. I, I commend the future um, forward looking view. And I think it's um, a sign of how you guys have, have been able to kind of be successful this long and hopefully will continue to in the future. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed talking. <laughs> no worries. Thank you for joining us on another episode of AgTech So What. You can stay up to date with the latest episodes and news at agtechsowhat.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or other guests to recommend, we'd love to hear from you. Just hop on the website and leave us a comment or send us a message. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.